from Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they are filled with new wine. Thank you, Claire. Okay, we are in Acts 2. We're taking just a one Sunday break from the Gospel of Mark to talk about Pentecost. And I know this is not the habit of this church or very many American churches at all. I never experienced this until I was in Germany. And there, um, it's, a big, it's a holiday weekend, Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Monday is a day off school. And on Sunday, we, the churches, evangelical churches, would partner, get together, and share services together to express the unity of the body of Christ. So we would always, with two or three other churches, gather on Pentecost Sunday and focus on the big idea of what Pentecost is about. Now, if you ask most people, and I have been asking this week people, what is Pentecost Sunday about, or what is Pentecost about, um, either they have no idea, or they'll say, isn't that for Pentecostals, right? And so I think both of those we want to try to fix. And, um, you know, I can... What, what's happening in this passage in Acts chapter 2... Um, comes within a context, right? And we're jumping into it because we were in the middle of Mark, but I'm uh, expecting that you all are pretty well caught up to date on what, how this church started. Um, so I can put myself in the place of an Arabian, Arab-speaking, Arabic is the only language that we have here today that was represented then. So you imagine this man from an Arab tribe, a Jewish Arab tribe, and there were still Jewish Arab tribes during the time of, of Muhammad, five, six hundred years later. And they're, they're making their yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, or as they called it, um, and as we call it in Arabic, Yom al-Khamsin. And this is 50 days after Passover. So it was a, the second largest Jewish feast and it was one that was established during the time of Moses. So thousands of years this has been going on. And after the dispersion, tribes of or Jews had, had been scattered from all of the places that were mentioned here in what we just read. And now you can, I just put myself in the place of this Arab young man coming with his family to Jerusalem. 
and they're hearing the rumblings about what happened with this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but some people say he was risen. And this, they accused him of being uh, a heretic who claimed to be God, and some were saying he was the Messiah. And there was a lot of, inc- a lot of confusion. The word surely was starting to get around that just 10 days earlier, a week and a half ago, he had risen on Mount Olives up to heaven and disappeared behind the clouds as his disciples watched. And they didn't, and this, this man has heard some of this, but, but all of that news is overshadowed by the yearly feast of the booths. And this, this uh, celebration would last a week. And people would go live in tents as they remember the time of their journeying in the wilderness. And so here's this this man, and all of a sudden, in Jerusalem, the tight, crowded city streets of Jerusalem, sitting on a hill, he hears, along with everybody else, a sound that the Bible describes in Acts 2 as a mighty, rushing wind that filled the entire house. And, And in fact, it must have been so loud that it got everybody's attention in the whole city. And we don't know how this happened, so we can only use our imagination that um, people came running toward this sound to figure out what this sound was about. And there was all sorts of commotion. Now, if you've ever been in the Middle East, you know that commotion draws a crowd. You know, in the U.S., we see a car wreck and we think, can I help in this situation? If not, I'll just let people who can help, help. And we might stay away. And sometimes we stay away to the detriment of people who need our help because we think we're not involved. This is the Western way. But in the Middle East, they come and congregate around a sound and around a problem, and they crowd around it. So people from all of Jerusalem, as this mighty rushing wind that made the sound that shook the whole city, came to see what was going on. And there was even, and it says, a divided tongues as of fire appearing to them and resting on each one of these 120 Jesus followers who previously were inside of one room and they were together. So what does, could this possibly look like? This was an amazing, miraculous, we've not seen it before, work of God. Tongues on people's heads, looks kind of like fire, sound like a mighty rushing wind, These people obviously had come out of the room because now they are announcing to people, trying to explain what's going on. You come to see a wreck and you want to know what's going on. People came to the sound to see what's going on. Obviously, evidently, they're explaining it. Peter, in in verse 14, stands along with the 11 and addressed the crowds. So there's this huge crowd. God has got their attention with both sight and sound. So audio and video going on. Alex would be this could not control this, can't organize it. There's no AV guy that can do this. This was God doing all of this. And they come to hear, and now Peter stands up and he preaches. But they had already been hearing the 12 or the 11, and maybe more, there were 120. They had been hearing them speak. Evidently, there were small groups of this going on, and they were hearing them speak, and they were surprised that it was in their own language. It says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And then Peter evidently came up, stood up, and gave one 
central message. Uh, it had to be a very loud sermon without microphones because at the end of the chapter, 3,000 gave their lives to Christ, believed, followed Jesus, and were baptized. So he's speaking to a crowd. It's minimum 3,000. It is technically possible that all those who heard believed and were baptized, but I doubt it. There was probably many who were reserving judgment. So let's say there were 6,000 or more. That's one of the biggest Christian gatherings I've ever been to was in Louisville at T4G years ago, and there were 7,000. So this was not an auditorium. This was outdoors, speaking to thousands of people, Peter lifting up his voice, and everyone hears him in their own language. And this was the beginning of the church. That's incredible. And I want to talk to you for a few minutes about three points here. Um, first of all, is it true? I think that we have a natural skeptic in us who hears a miraculous situation like this, and just a little bit of thought about whether it's true or not will help us, I think, today. And then secondly, what was God doing on Pentecost? And then lastly, how should we respond? And I'm going to try to do all that in a pretty short time. So we'll get started. Is it true? First of all, the purpose of these, mir of these miracles was to confirm that what was really being said was supernatural, that it came from a supernatural source. So if Peter stands up and says, God has said and God has done then these miracles confirmed that God was actually saying and doing them. So God cares that our faith has a foundation. And because God cares that our faith has a foundation, there's some evidence that will fall short of proof because there is no ultimate proof in anything outside of mathematics for us that we'll we will require faith, but it will give us evidence. So how do we know this is true? Or what evidence is there that this is true? So first of all, I'll give you four things that I see here as evidence that this actually happened, that it was truly an event that happened. First of all, is that the miracles were recorded. So Luke, who wrote this down in chapter 1, said that he is writing it for Theophilus so that he would know that about what had really happened. So during the time of the people who were alive that saw it, Luke wrote about it. Now that's some evidence. If you write about something that was a historical event while the people are alive who saw it and who experienced it, there were witnesses alive. Um, and that, that was the second proof, is that there were hundreds of witnesses that were insiders, so people that had skin in the game to, to say that this was true. But there were thousands who were outsiders, who had no interest that this be true or happen or not happen. So by comparison, and this, this will just give you, I think, just by comparison, some more confidence in your faith, is that, you know, if you look at all of the miracles that Christ performed, these were sign miracles. They were when he healed someone, when he rose, raised someone from the dead, then he was performing a sign that showed something. So he raises somebody from the dead, he's the prince of life, Right? He breaks bread and one young boy's food and gives it to 5,000. He is the bread of life who came down as manna from heaven. So each of Jesus' miracles were to show a sign that something is true. And he did thousands, so many, that John said in chapter 20 of his gospel that there are so much things that he said and did that they couldn't possibly be held by all the books in the world. 
And now you multiply those of Jesus. He said, my followers will do more than me because there were 12 of them, 11 after Judas, and he gave them power, apostolic gifts, to also confirm that what they, what they were saying was supernatural. And so there were multiplied miracles going on after Jesus' ascension. Now, to give a bit of a comparison, in Islam, there are two miracles that Muhammad is said to have performed, two. Of those miracles, there are zero witnesses. One is where he cut the moon in half, and the other is where he went overnight on a flying horse to Jerusalem and back. Those are the only two, and of them, they don't even claim that there were witnesses. It's not like he said, and, the, and you all were witnesses of it. He said, that happened while you guys were sleeping and you didn't see it. I'm not saying they're true or not. It's not my religion. I can only judge by the outside. But I can say, in comparison to the miracles of Pentecost, the miracles of Jesus and the disciples, the, not only the evidence, but the witnesses of that are, there's, there's absolutely no comparison. It's like comparing zero to a million. It, it, there's no comparison to it. So a third evidence is that the miracles were prophesied. Paul, or Peter, as he preached, look at what he says in verse 16 of chapter 2. If you have your Bible, we didn't have this in the sermon text. It's here in the text after that sermon text. In verse 16, he says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. And then he continues to quote Joel. Joel prophesied that this would happen, um, and he says, in the last days. If you go to uh, verse 25, for David says, and, he, and, and then Peter gives another prophecy, and this one was about the resurrection of Jesus. So there was... The reason I think it's important and worthwhile to remember Pentecost is because we remember the resurrection and we remember the coming of Jesus on Christmas. Uh, I think this, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, prophesied by the prophet Joel, that empowered the church and kicked it off, is worth pausing and remembering on this week, 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit came and lived within us. And it was prophesied about by the prophet Joel, that this would happen. He didn't mention it, but it was also prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah that this would happen. So prophecy gives our faith a firmer foundation because we realize that there is evidence that God said this would happen before it did. The fourth evidence here is that these miracles changed history. They literally changed history. They set off a course of events that would begin the church, that would continue until this day. So this was not just some circus that people came to be entertained by, like an, to watch an elephant walking on a ball or you know, a motorcycle running around a cage in a circle. This was people whose lives were changed at that moment as they became passionate Jesus followers, and also the history of all of our civilization was changed because of this miracle on this day at Pentecost. So this was also a great difference between the miracles, the two miracles that I just mentioned in Islam and also the miracle of in Pentecost and life of Jesus. Those miracles that I mentioned, if you heard them, you were wondering maybe what relevance do they have to history, and they don't. But the, this was relevant 
because it was life-changing and history-changing. So this is, for me, I think, some solid evidence that we can believe that this actually happened. Now, what was God doing? This is the big question. Why did God do this? Um, And there's three things I want to point out today. They're going to take a little bit of Bible background. So if you don't catch it all, I apologize. But I I, I don't want to take too long. So first, there are three things. God was doing three things. I'll tell you what it was, and then uh, we'll talk about them one by one. First of all, he was delivering a new covenant. This was the actual deliverance of the covenant. Okay, I'm not going to explain it yet. First, he was delivering a new covenant. Secondly, he was sending his indwelling spirit. And third, he was creating his people. Okay, first of all, he was delivering his new covenant. In the Jewish calendar, the time that, that the covenant was established was on Mount Sinai. When the people left Egypt and they came living in tents and were facing the mountain... Moses went up to the mountain, received the Ten Commandments, and it was in Exodus chapter 19, if you read it, that God said, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. So as they remembered the establishing of God's covenant with his people, they did that during this feast that was called the Shavuot in in Hebrew. And we call it the the Feast of Booths. And it was where they remembered when God gave his word to his people and covenanted with them that they would be his people and he would be their God. Now, 50, that came 50 days after the Passover. The Passover is when they remembered the purpose of the Passover was to remember redemption, that he redeemed them from, from slavery. And then 50 days later, they're now in the wilderness and the purpose of that celebration was to remember creation of his people. Now, in the new covenant, the Passover to remember redemption happened on the crucifixion of Christ, who was crucified on Passover and rose again three days later. That was, for Christians, as we remember that, that was a celebration of redemption. Fifty days later at Pentecost, God was now establishing his covenant with his people by sending his spirit, which sealed his covenant. Now, we understand that the Holy Spirit is called the seal. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that he put his gospel and his word into us by his spirit. And at the coming of the spirit, the new covenant, which was, was made by his blood, was sealed and confirmed on the day of Pentecost. And so the purpose of Pentecost was that God was establishing or confirming or sealing his new covenant. This was a major deal to Jewish people that they were coming from all of these places to remember God making his, co- his first co- or his, the old covenant. Now this for Christians is a big deal. Remembering his spirit coming to us. So moving on from that real quick, um, the second is that, uh, let me see, I, I want to skip some things so I have some time. The second thing, I, the second is that Pentecost was God sending his indwelling word. So I told you that on, on the, the day of Pentecost, or Yom Al-Khamsin in Arabic, I'm sure there's a way to say it in Hebrew that sounds similar, but on Pentecost, 
which that word penta means five or 50, Pentecost is 50 days or chamsin days after uh, the Passover, they would remember God giving his word to his people on Mount Sinai. So when God came, when God came by his spirit, he fulfilled a prophecy that he said to, that he told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33 that he would write his word on our hearts, that we would no longer have the word external to us that a prophet would need to tell us, but that he would write his word on our hearts by his spirit, and we would no longer need a brother or a sister to say, this is the Lord or that's the Lord, but we would all individually have a personal relationship with the Lord, and he would write his word on our hearts. Now, um, this, a synonym for the indwelling word are things like his promises, his covenant, his love letter to us, his good news. We're going through the gospel of Mark, and the gospel is what he confirmed by the sending of his spirit, that this is good news. So tongues of fire came on every believer, or tongues came on every believer that resembled in some way fire. We don't know what that looked like, but there are two key words there. First of all is fire. Now, an Old Testament fire is an Old Testament symbol of the word of God. If you remember, um, Jeremiah said that the word of, or was it Isaiah? Somebody can help me. That the word of God is like a consuming fire. So um, it is powerful. It is transformational. It takes matter and it transforms it. His word was given on tablets of stone, but now written on our hearts, but not just for the priests, not just for the pastors, but for every one of the 120 believers that were gathered. It was not only these, the spirit that was given to the apostles. It was the spirit given to every believer. Every person would hear God's word and speak God's word, and every believer at that moment became a priest. So to illustrate this, is, is a pastor closer to God or not? Well, it's obvious for you all that all believers are priests and equal before God. In a lot of cultures of the world, that's not obvious. And even when, when I was preaching about this last year on Pentecost in Germany, I had to describe that my new brother, who's from China, who had just come to Christ, is now just as indwelled with the Holy Spirit and just as capable of prayer and speaking to God and hearing from God as I am, who, who was the pastor of the church. And so I, I think sometimes that seems very obvious but to you, but in majority of cultures in the world, even in Catholic and Orthodox places, this is not at all obvious to them or not at all common knowledge. So the Spirit and the Word come together here on Pentecost. Upon receiving Jesus the Word, his people received his Spirit. Upon receiving his Spirit, his people spoke his Word boldly. So you see that the Spirit of God and the Word of God came completely united and, and together. Um, so you have the word of God living in you, written in your hearts, and that's what God was doing. Is he was first establishing or sealing the new covenant, and secondly, he came by his indwelling spirit to fulfill the promise that Jesus had said that he was going to send his spirit. Thirdly, the last one is that on the day of Pentecost, God was creating his people. And this is 
this is a really wonderful thing. If you think about it, on the day of Pentecost, there's a number of ways that this miracle could have gone. Right? So, God could have immediately given everyone the ability to understand Arabic or Aramaic, if that's the language they were preaching in. It was written for us in Greek, so we're not totally sure because there were a number of common languages going on back then, but it was probably in Aramaic. So the Holy Spirit could have unified their languages, right? It's possible. God can do anything. If he would have done that, we could have found that to be very poetic, right? Because it would be like a reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 11 with Babel, where God uh, divided their languages. You remember what happened on the Tower of Babel? They were building a tower, not at all indwelled with the Spirit of God, with the spirit of pride, with the spirit of, um, who was that guy? Son of Noah, grandson of Noah, Nimrod. With the spirit of Nimrod, which is a common insult for children when I was a kid, with the spirit of Nimrod, they were building a tower so that they would become famous and glorious, that they would become like God. God stopped the building of the tower by dividing languages, right? He, I find this to be amazing, and actually they, they found no uh, traceable origin to languages. Like there was, we imagine how people may have developed language and we hear about cavemen who just communicated with grunts and then people imagine, but there's actually no evidence for how any language was ever created. It's as if people were just given language, as if it were implanted as software into our minds. And so God confused the software, but actually gave new software in Genesis 11 of different languages. We don't know how many or which ones, but somehow he confused their languages so that they could not any longer communicate with each other, and they were divided. And they spread out, and they could no longer communicate. Well, he could have erased language diversity, and just brought unified language back together on that day and created a sort of a religious language that now everybody would automatically learn who receives the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he did. Instead of reversing the curse of Babel, he redeemed the curse of Babel. So he took the, the result of the fall of Babel was that there were languages that we could no longer communicate with each other in. That, that thing was not reversed, but it was redeemed. So you would have thought then the fall of, or the, the diversification of languages must be bad. It must be evil because it was the result of sin. But it's a beautiful thing that God can redeem the results of sin in our lives. That he can take the things that the, the, the unfortunate, like for example, the king of Israel, how did they get a king? By demanding a king. Was that God's will? No. He said, you should not ask for a king, but I'll give you a king. He redeemed their request for a king by giving them David, who he said would, his son would be the king, Jesus. And so instead of throwing away the idea of a king, he redeems the idea of a king by himself coming as their king. And here he's redeeming this thing of many different languages and so instead of all hearing and under, automatically understanding Aramaic, they actually hear Aramaic in their own language. 
And now, all of a sudden, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died and was killed and rose again for their salvation, was being heard in all of these different languages automatically without Wycliffe Bible translators. It just happened. And I, can, I don't know how long this happened. Like, it had to have not just been that sermon because they continued to teach the apostles' doctrine and they baptized people. You can imagine this guy in, in Aramaic saying, you know, have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And a guy hears him in Arabic and then he baptizes him I, or in all the different languages that were represented. So um, on the day of Pentecost, God used all of these different languages to create a people. And his people would be his church. And he did it by redeeming the fall, by redeeming the effects of the fall. Um, you, you might ask this question, why don't we see this right now? Why, maybe the Pentecostals are right, and we need to ask God to use tongues to reach people, so why don't we see this anymore? Or why haven't I witnessed it? Or maybe you have witnessed it. I don't know. We could talk about that. But why, are, why isn't this the common modus operandi of God today? Well, I'll give you an illustration and then a little bit of proof. Um, my wife and I were married in 2003. 20 years ago, come September, none of our children were there. They did not witness it. Uh, they've seen some pictures and we've told them about it. But they have all benefited that that event happened. And when we look back at it, it's the fountain by which they've received the blessings of a home and of being created as a family. And I think at the Heltons, they have a, a, a wooden thing that says something like established in 2017, or is that in Joe and Joe, Joe's house? That's you guys. So it, your home or your people were, cre were established in that ceremony, right? And in that wedding ceremony, your children will never see it, but they will always benefit from it. And this is what Pentecost was. It was something that God did to establish this ceremony that we will never see happen again in that same way, but we will always benefit from. And as we remember it, we are remembering a supernatural creation of God's people. So this is what God was doing. He was creating a people and um, bringing many into one body, his church. So how should we respond? I want to just give you a few quick things. First of all, we should remember it. I think we should remember it. Um, we, in our complimentary reading, Rasha read, um, where is your power? Where, why have we not, there's the, the frustration by the psalmist. Why have we not seen your great works? Why are why are we not seeing miracles that are bringing people to Jesus? And, and then he said, remember, I will remember your great works. Most of our lives and most of church history is lived in this common grace period where you don't, in even most of Old Testament history, you don't see the miracles every day. You don't see these outward shows of, of grace, but you see common grace in your life. And during those times, it is important to remember the miraculous works of God that he has done for his people. And so how should we respond? I think we should, we do well to remember Pentecost and thank God for what he did there to start his church. Secondly, I think that we should participate in his mission of redemption. When we do every effort to learn one word in another language or to learn to eat cow 
stomach, even if we don't like menudo. So because the Mexican, the, my Mexican friend Israel is his favorite, and I go and eat cow stomach with him. Every time we cross a culture for the purpose of sharing this gospel, we are participating with the Spirit in the redemption of all of his people. And lastly, we should receive the new covenant. People are still being invited into the covenant by looking back at what Christ has done on the cross and the Holy Spirit's indwelling of his people. And we are still promised the covenant as we look forward. So we should remember, we should participate in the redemption, and we should receive the new covenant. As a church and CCC, our heart is that the Lord would reach the nations through us. Well, we have a God who does that. That's what he does. And he can use us in our efforts to do that in his common ways of showing grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the miraculous beginnings of the church. Help us to not um, lack faith of what you can do to miraculously bring people to you and help us in the middle times to wait and to preach and to, to believe that your spirit is and will bring people to your kingdom. In Jesus' name.